As we approach the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the frenetic U.S. pullout from Afghanistan under dangerous conditions has reopened the wounds of those strikes and once again raises the specter of al-Qaeda and ISIS taking root in Afghan soil, posing new global threats to American security and those of our allies for decades to come. Hello, everyone. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Joining me now to talk about the deepening crisis in Afghanistan and its ramifications is my dear friend, Michael Hurley, who served for 25 years as a CIA operations officer, serving 15 of those in foreign countries. Immediately after the 9-11 attacks, Hurley deployed for 18 months to Afghanistan, where he led agency personnel and US special forces in Operation Anaconda, the biggest campaign of the Afghan conflict to find and destroy the last refuge of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. In that role, Mike also was a leader in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. He also served as a senior counsel and team leader on the 9-11 Commission, directing its counterterrorism policy investigation and co-authoring its best-selling final report. Hurley remains deeply immersed in the national security and policy implications in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks and speaks and advises widely on those critical issues. He currently is a strategic advisor to some of the most innovative technology companies in Silicon Valley and beyond. Mike, welcome to Techtopia. Hi, Chitra. Thanks very much. It's great to be back with you. We are recording this on Thursday, August 26th. All of this is unfolding as we approach the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that, in fact, resulted in the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and America's longest war. And you have been grounded in the story for decades as one of the first CIA officers to volunteer to go to Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, why did you make the decision to volunteer to go? And tell us a little bit about the work you did in those uh, days and months in Afghanistan, including uh, Operation Anaconda. Well, I think like for all Americans, um, we all we all that were that were you know sort of alive and and uh, on on nine eleven we all we will all remember where we were on on the day of, of September eleventh two thousand one and I was working at um, CIA headquarters and I was a fairly senior manager managing managing I think maybe a total of four hundred people uh, many of whom were deployed overseas but I think. Every American had a sort of a visceral response that they would like to uh, they would like to do something um, in response because it was that 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 day and the tragedy of it and the the sudden loss of death and the sense of vulnerability that we had in the United States following from it um, as Americans was so dramatic and such a change in what we were used to that I think many of us thought that if we had the the ability to um, participate in uh, some kind of U.S. response to that, that, that we would do that. And I, I happened to be in a career that, that allowed me to do that. And I knew that at that point, I think I had um, on 2001, I think maybe 17 or 18 years, uh, just about that uh, in, in the agency. So I was, I was a veteran CIA officer who had served in war zones. And I just kind of felt impelled, I think, something in me that, that I, I needed now to take that experience and try to put it to, um, to work for the United States and, and, and in a way to, to play my small role in, in defending the country. And so that very day I was at that morning of the 9-11 attacks. So I was in my job and this happened and the senior management of the agency issued orders that the building be evacuated because the CIA's CI main building in 
in Langley, Virginia. And so they ordered people to evacuate the building. And that was because they believed there was a very good chance that CIA building itself might be targeted. Nobody really knew how many other planes had been hijacked and um, the Pentagon had been struck. There were concerns that the State Department was going to be struck. Um, all those sorts of rumors were flying around. Uh, but uh, what were considered essential employees were asked to stay. And just because of the job I was in, I fell into that category. So I stayed and that afternoon I walked down to the counter-terrorist center uh, at CIA. And incidentally, all of those people were essential. Obviously, uh, I think there were maybe 150 of them and they all stayed at their desks. Um, remarkably within two hours, they had identified um, each of the hijackers of, of the four planes hijacked that morning and knew that they were Al-Qaeda. Um, and so I, I just resolved that um, that day that I, I walked the, the CIA counter-terrorist center. I knew one of the senior uh, leaders in that center who had been leading the efforts to capture or kill bin Laden in the years before the 9-11 attacks um, and to respond to, to develop intelligence on Al-Qaeda worldwide and other Sunni extremist groups. And I went in and saw him and volunteered to go to Afghanistan that day. Um, it then took them another seven or eight weeks to actually get me out there. And in, in, in the interim, from uh, September 11th until I left for Afghanistan two months later, I was working in the counter-terrorist center and uh, doing a variety of things to, to respond to those attacks. So I think it was really just that I had I had the opportunity. That was the that was the career I was in. And I also sort of I also sort of felt that people that had my level of experience, that the agency was going to need that kind of background. Um, I should add, though, that I wasn't certainly not an expert um, in South Asia or in Afghanistan, or nor did I know the languages, nor was I, I steeped in, you know, sort of knowledge of, um, of Islam, or uh, I did know something about the terrorist groups and so on. But I think kind of more importantly, what we needed to draw on right away was people that were, were people that had the experience, um, which I had had in my career, um, actually, across a number of years of being, being dropped into totally unique and new circumstances and just figuring out how to, um, how to be productive there and carry out the agency's mission. And, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the work that you did, but what was that like? I mean, clearly you've, you've established that you were not an expert in the region, the food, the culture, the language, and then you're dropped into the middle of this terrain, right? And uh, the mountains and, and expected to go look for the Taliban. What was that like? Are there a couple of stories you could share uh, other than your devotion to Cipro to keep you safe and healthy? <laughs> what were some of the things that were the most challenging? Well, I, I always remember that any time that I, uh, and, and I think this is important for your listeners to know that CIA is um, unlike the military in a lot of ways, you're not ordered to go to these places. Um, people volunteer to go to them. And, and there is that spirit of, of, of volunteering. But I do remember, so the, the first leg of me getting to Afghanistan was on a commercial airlines out of the United States to uh, Frankfurt, I think, Frankfurt, Germany. And I remember getting on the plane and uh, as uh, somewhere in the flight over the Atlantic, I was asking myself, okay, what have you gotten yourself into this time? <laughs> uh, and um, 
and you know you you do have those doubts um but but it's always been the case that once once i hit the ground whether it was in bosnia or kosovo or haiti during the intervention there going going into military zones and conflict zones that once you get on the ground your uh training just takes over um and and you realize you have a job to do and so whatever you know doubts or concerns or fears you have you just sort of compartmentalize and put your head down and start doing your work and that's that that's what happened so so that that was the first thing um but then i i remember getting there um the last sort of stage of, of actually getting there at the time was eventually i got to tashkent uzbekistan where the united states government had um pretty much commandeered through payments to the uzbek government of 50 or 100 million dollars had pretty much taken over a military base and airport so that we knew that we're going to be needing to fly in airplanes and helicopters and things like that and that's where we stayed overnight and then eventually on planes that took us into Kabul and from there on to hell on to helicopters um and this is sort of an anecdote that people and there's so many aspects and I think about this often when I think about our military it was certainly true of CIA to get our officers then from Kabul um to um these outlying far reaching parts of scattered parts of Afghanistan we had to fly on helicopters that that the CIA had bought they were old russian helicopters and the reason they bought russian helicopters was these particular helicopters uh were better able to fly at very high altitudes than conventional helicopters and so they were rebuilt and refurbished but nonetheless russian helicopters and uh flown by our own pilots but you could only it was scary because um you could only fly at night because of the concerns of um being shot at by uh stinger missiles or um or other weapons from the ground so night flying was safer and that meant the pilots were flying literally wearing night vision devices uh but for us sitting in the back of these helicopters and you'd look out the windows as you were sort of crouched back there and it seemed like these mountain passes at 8000 9000 feet these feet these sheer rock walls were just inches away from the blades of, of the helicopter um so that was pretty scary in and of itself and then the other thing is that when you got to your destination you hope very much that the forces that came to meet you were were friendly afghan militia rather than Taliban or Al Qaeda um and there was a good chance they were going to be friendly but we kind of sometimes never knew for certain and for listeners that that may have seen some of the stories and the movies about the horse soldiers in Afghanistan and things like that it it literally was like that that we were using kind of local transportation often um i had um once i got to know some of the local people we uh we would uh, they 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 came and they they gave us camels literally kind of um out of friendship so we had camels on our base which was pretty crazy but also uh we had to we had to go in and respect the the people of Afghanistan in these in these rural areas and we had to have compounds these kind of mud walled compounds that um that people may have seen on on CNN or coverage uh, coverage of Afghanistan and we would go in there we couldn't just take them you had to kind of rent them and i remember one time going into this uh this family of um afghans this big sort of clan and they had a, 
one of these compounds that seemed perfect for us. And I walked in with a couple of people and with a translator and sort of sat down and they offered me tea. And uh, I remember sort of saying, look, we'd like to, we'd like to rent this place, um, you know, if at all possible. And so the, the head of the family, uh, a man who was maybe in his mid sixties or so, kind of replied that, well, this has been in our family for 200 years and we never consider renting it. No, I'm not going to do it. At which point I had a satchel with me and I just opened it up and it was probably filled with maybe $200,000 in cash, all in $100 bills. And I looked at him and said, we really want to rent this. You know, a half hour later, they they all crammed into like one big pickup truck with all the kids in the back and that kind of their their dearest possessions and um, and drove away, uh, leaving me the keys to this place. And, um, and so we got our compound, and they were they were suddenly a great deal richer than they'd ever been in their lives. Um, so uh, all kinds of things like that. It was sort of crazy. There was no there was no blueprint for us um, in in what we were doing. Um, and it was pretty fascinating for me because we had deployed with us, with that, when I say us, I'm talking about a, a core CIA team of about eight people um, in this sort of far-flung part of Afghanistan that I was sent to first, which was along the Pakistani border. And so, uh, but it was really the first time, I think, in many years that the agency had worked super closely with the elite of the US military maybe other than for certain special operations around the world by that. So we had with us um, a team of Green Berets whose job it was to uh, train and equip a friendly Afghan militia to help us and help provide security for us. Um, uh, we were the ones that, that is the CIA, so my team of eight, and we had a communicator and we had a medic and uh, other operations officers with us. Um, and uh, we had the we had the responsibility of paying the salaries because um, we would get the money and pay the salaries to um, these Afghan uh, friendly Afghan militia and buy the pickups for them for their transportation and bring in the doctors for their medical treatment uh, and all those sorts of things and 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 provide them the food and then the gasoline for their trucks. That was our responsibility. And then we also brought in that the agency got from the world market uh, weapons and ammunition, but then it was the Green Berets that trained them. But then we also had located with us because we knew we were gonna be doing off offensive operations, the most elite forces in the United States military, including Delta Force, our elite hostage rescue team, SEAL Team 6. Uh, we also had with us British Special Air Service and British Special Boat Service and Australian Special Air Service with us too. So it was, Pretty remarkable group of uh, of people who were who were there to um, to carry out our mission, and our mission was to uh, to locate where Al Qaeda was in the mountains and to capture or kill them. Uh, it was as simple as that. With the other high priority being to try to find Bin Laden and his top lieutenants to do the same, and that's what the initial seven teams that CIA had spread in around in strategic parts of Afghanistan were, were, all, were all doing in those early days. And you talked about opening the satchel full of money, and that was par for the course for you, right? I mean, there were like helicopters with dropping off pallets of cash, right? It was, money was no object in this, in this uh, mission. Yeah, every couple of weeks, and the money went fast because um, we had to, uh, we had to pay a, a I think 1500 person Afghan militia that we recruited and that meant paying the commander of it, you know, a lot of money, but then 
Um, I think the salary that we paid each soldier, Afghan soldier was $100 a month, which is a lot of money to them. Um, and it was the hundred, hundred, it was a hundred dollars because that was the smallest denomination that we had. Everything we had was a hundred dollars <laughs> and you couldn't, you couldn't pay somebody $50 or $20 because nobody had change for that. So that became <laughs> the basic unit. Um, but, but there were so many things, for example, it was important to win the, the, the friendship and help of the local villagers, um, because, they were the ones that would tell us that they saw Al-Qaeda out at night putting improvised explosive devices um, around, along the roads that we were using, um, things like that. So they, they protected us. And so we used uh, money to um, set up clinics in those uh, villages and, and then brought in medicine from Pakistan and India, um, kind of, you know, kind of first world medicine that they hadn't experienced in those places. So they were grateful for that. We opened schools, um, as people know, uh, girls hadn't been, um, hadn't been allowed to be educated under the Taliban um, rule there. And um, their whole plan was to keep girls and women illiterate. So we set up schools for all kids, really you know, girls and boys. And um, that, meant that, that meant that we paid the teachers and we had to set up classrooms under tents, for example, um, and provide them with the basics in school supplies and even just giving them planks as desks or, um, you know, sort of sheaves of paper and pens were kind of, you know, unimaginable riches to them. Um, and they were grateful for it. But once you start doing that, the expenses never stop because we learned that, you know, the teachers had to come in um, to teach from outlying areas. So we had to get them safely, which means we, we had to buy a school bus and then we had to pay a driver and then we had to pay for generators for um, some of the equipment at the schools and so on. So it, it, was, it was pretty much never ending. And, um, and, and yeah, all that American cash is what, what, what paid that. And, and it's relevant to today because in, in doing all of that, uh, we really had to lie, rely on local uh, local Afghans. Um, we had to rely on them for as translators, the ones that knew English. Uh, we had uh, to to be drivers for us, to go into the towns to rent the cars that we needed. You know, to get the food we needed for the friendly Afghan militia. There were so many people that that helped us, and of course we had to we had to pay for them. But often these translators would go with us when we were doing uh, military operations. And consequently, they put themselves in harm, harm's way. And I think about that a lot now. Um, there was an article in the New York Times just this morning that said something like there's 250,000, a quarter million Afghans in Afghanistan now who will be left behind who helped the United States, which sounds like a big number. But when you, when you think about over 20 years, it's not a surprising number. And I think that's before you add in their families. Um, so uh, if you add in their families, then the number of people we probably have to get out of Afghanistan would be, or let's put it this way, who, who likely face uh, reprisals uh, from the Taliban of one kind or another is, is a pretty high number and it's a scary number. Um, and I think it's the case that it doesn't matter if someone was helping us, you know, back in 2001, 2002, 2003, all their neighbors know who was helping the Americans, you know, and maybe making some money out of it. Um, and th those people will be in danger. The other thing I think about with respect to that, Chitra, is that um, 
you know, I think in those early days, we weren't really thinking about, we were paying people in cash and we knew who they were, but it's not like any of us really kept records of how to stay in touch with them 10 years down the road. Either they didn't have email addresses or they might've had phones um, and the translators certainly did. We had to communicate with them and others, but, but you know, phone numbers change over 20 years. And so I think even being able to um, contact those people now, uh, you know, to know who they are and to, um, to confirm that they helped Americans would be pretty hard in some cases. So I, I, I fear for the fates that, that, that they will face in the coming months. Yeah, and that's, uh, that number sounds like it could be almost, what, um, half a million people, right? That may have helped us over 20 years. Yeah, if you include their families, and, um, and, and it's probably important to include their families in that number because if the Taliban knows that somebody uh, helped the, um, the U.S. government or our allies, uh, U.S. military, um, whoever there, and those people have gotten out, I don't think they'll have any qualms about going after their children, their brothers, their sisters, their parents, um, third cousins for that matter. Um, uh, you know, so that's that's a that's a pre, it's a pretty scary proposition when you think about it. Yeah, and you wonder what the Biden administration did to kind of put its arms around that that huge problem of trying to figure out just how many people would need to be taken out of Afghanistan in order to protect them, uh, and 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 how to organize that because it just seemed to all collapse uh, all of a sudden. Well, yes, and and to and and not to. Um, sort of mitigate or lessen, you know, some of the mistakes I think that the Biden administration has made. Um, I will say, though, that that's a failure that, that cuts across a number of um, administrations because that information and, and keeping accurate records um, and knowing how to contact these people is something that, that should have been undertaken and carried on across a number of years. Um, and I can sort of understand that. I'm not making excuses for myself, but we were focused on other things. We were paying people in cash in that first year or two. But later on, when things became, I guess, more bureaucratic and more, there was more organization and things like that, I think it was, would have been, it's important that, that there be some documentation for the people that actually helped us. Because, and the reason I think that is because it was foreseeable all along that at any given time, if the United States decided to pull out or whatever, that things could collapse pretty quickly. And so just having a better reservoir of accurate information, it, it, it obviously was never going to be perfect. I think Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, he had a very interesting article two weeks ago where he talked about this, some of these issues. And one of the things he said was that you need to remember that in 2001, um, very few people in Afghanistan had cell phones, very few, maybe the elites, people in Kabul and the big cities, the rich people, but hardly anybody else did. Um, and now, 20 years later, 70% of Afghans have smartphones. And he also pointed out that in 2001, Facebook didn't exist, Snapchat didn't exist, uh, Instagram didn't exist, WhatsApp didn't exist, Skype didn't exist. And so all those changes are fairly significant because it means that that's the world that anybody under 20 in Afghanistan, and that's probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 45, 50% of the population 
has grown up in an utterly different situation under, under Taliban rule uh, in the pre 9-11 days. Uh, so, uh, so at least for the last you know, decade or so, it would have been possible to build up a, a system to know, okay, who, do we, who are we gonna need to get out um, if push comes to shove um, at rapidly? And, and we certainly would have known that people that worked for us would face danger. And I, I, I think, so I don't, I don't just place this on, on Biden's doorstep. I, I place it on three or four administrations that, that should have been you know, working up contingency plans uh, for years, basically, that, that could then be put in effect. And I, I don't have the sense that that was done. When you were not working on a lot of this, uh, you know, supportive supportive operations like building schools and and you know community building and all of that, you were also up in the mountains looking for information, talking to tribal chiefs and others to find information about uh, the the Taliban and Bin Laden. What was that like? Uh, it, it was pretty hostile terrain, I imagine, and cold and dangerous, and and you had to then build the trust of these trial chiefs and others who might be able to help? Yes, yeah, so well, our our, um, our compound was located on a plateau in the Shaikot Mountains in Afghanistan, and it was at an elevation of, I think, 9,500 feet. Um, so it would get very cold at night, even in the summer. But in the winter, it was pretty much intolerable. We used to literally, and we slept in our clothes and in our boots with three or four pairs of socks on. And and I remember in one sleeping bag inside another sleeping bag, it's kind of the only way to stay warm. But yes, um, we had to go out and, um, and deal with a whole range of people as potential sources of information. And the problem always is, is the reliability of the people that you're, you're speaking with. Um, how reliable are they? Can you, one, can you even trust them? Are you in danger meeting with them? So you have to deal with all those issues. But then uh, people, when they smell money, might be willing to tell you just about anything if they think there's going to be a payment that comes from it. So you had to sift through all of this stuff and um, use a number of different intelligence sources. For example, if they told you, if someone told you that there's a you know group of 30 Al-Qaeda in these mountains off somewhere, you would try to, you know, you, you, wouldn't, you would base actions or operations based on that alone. You would try to get that from a number of sources, but then you would try to get it validated by um, satellite photographs of that area, for example, or intercepts of phone calls um, to give you further validation. You're not going to commit American um, soldiers uh, to go into harm's way just on the basis of you know some locals' statement that there's Al Qaeda here or there, so that was always the kind of the difficulty. And then, of course, you had the um, you had the language difficulties, which we did have very early on. Um, some experts in Dari and Pashto, the the languages of Afghanistan, um, Dari being a close cousin of Farsi, the Persian language, but those people, um, you know. Got, got exhausted pretty quickly. Um, and there weren't that many across the US government, not just in the CIA, but um, in, in the military, for example, to do the, that kind of translating. So we had to rely on hiring locals who spoke good English um, and, and rely on them and you know, vet them to make sure they were trustworthy and not dangerous and not posing a threat to, threat to us. But then just you know, being able to kind of communicate, um, you know, as best you can with people and extract from them um, what you could about the kind of intelligence that, that we were need. I, I remember uh, in one instance, um, 
someone told us that, um, and this was someone who had been reporting to us for a while that the the number two of Al Qaeda, Ayman Al Zawahiri, you remember he was the Egyptian physician, um, had been had been wounded in a drone strike, and he was at a hospital um, hospital some medical clinic, um, maybe 30 or 40 miles away from where our camp was. Well, you can imagine the priority of capturing this high value target. And there were people that I, that and some of my officers who were, you know, sort of enthusiastic about getting into a, you know, a, a pickup and going there and, and capturing the guy right then. Well, to me, it just sounded a little bit like too good to be true. Um, and before, I mean, I sent the information into headquarters but um, I also was in touch with our, our military in Bagram. Um, there was a special team there that would be dispatched. Um, th this, were, this was a Delta Force that would be dis dispatched to, um, to capture high value targets. And so there was this back and forth and you had to do it very quickly uh, about the reliability of the intelligence. And I just couldn't, I, I really couldn't vouch for it. Um, and you've got to be very careful because even putting these elite teams on helicopters. What if a helicopter crashes, um, you know, or something like that on the way on a mission like this, which happens, it happened in Desert One in the Iranian hostage uh, rescue mission, you remember. So every single one of these operations in these, uh, in these countries where if there is an emergency, there's no, you know, 911 that you call because no one's gonna respond. Um, it has to be thought through and, and anyway, Eventually, we got further eyes on that clinic and found out it wasn't a clinic. It was a it was a farmhouse or something. And this guy had just totally made this up. But I remember headquarters getting on my case, sort of saying, you know, um, that you've got the chance to get the number two of Al Qaeda. And I'm like writing back to them saying, this is all BS. It's not, you know, like you can't be sitting back there at headquarters second guessing me um, about this because. You know, obviously, if there was even, you know, I don't know, a 10% chance that he was actually there, we probably would have taken the chance. But I, I rated it as 0% chance that, that he, was, he was there and, in fact, turned out to be right on that one. So, um, but there, there were many instances when, you know, other teams would, would call on this, um, this uh, capability of these uh, special operators at Bagram to go and uh, go on a mission. And, and it, it turned out to be, to be you know, a waste of their time, and and each time they're 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 literally in danger, and when you think back to the, when you think back to the um, the raid on uh, what turned out to be Bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad in May 2011, that was one of the big questions. Like uh, you know how uh, how likely was it that the intelligence uh, that he may be there, Bin Laden may be there, um, how 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 reliable was that? And that was one of the debates that went on. Um, and there were some that just sort of said, you know, that that's that's too big a risk um, based on the the level of probability um, that he that he might that that he might be there. So you're constantly kind of weighing these different, you know, sort of balancing, you know, the the the, the trade off on, on these kinds of these kinds of things. But not just that, you're making split second decisions, uh, narrow windows of opportunity here, right? If you were to get someone like that they could quickly get wind of it uh, and and leave uh, or get moved out by their their people. And so you have to really trust yourself, trust your judgment, but in very hostile terrain, in very unfamiliar terrain, and be able to make those kinds of decisions and hope that they're correct. 
yeah, it's very difficult. And, and it was, um, you know, for, for someone who grew up in a suburb of, of uh, Minneapolis, um, this was foreign terrain for me, for sure. Um, I've always liked being in a situation where I'm in completely new circumstances and then, and then figuring out how to thrive in it. And I think that's what CIA looks for um, in operations officers, that you can go into a, not, not just a hostile situation, but an entirely new challenging situation and not be paralyzed by it and, and begin to get your wheels turning you know, and your, your gears clicking and, and, and to do what needs to be done. Um, and so there was always that, but it, one big difference was, and I, I'm not sure people fully understand it, but um, you know, typically for an operations officer working overseas, when you are, um, when, you, when you come into contact with someone who may be a source of important intelligence for the United States government, you will often have six months, a year, two years, to get to know that person, to assess your basic questions. Are they who they say they are? Do they have the job they claim to have? Are they really you know, a, a prominent person working in the Ministry of Defense of the Russian government or something like that? Um, what is their personality? What are their, uh, what are their interests? Why are they even willing to talk to you knowing that you're an American government official? All those things you assess and you evaluate um, as you figure out whether there's someone who ultimately will cooperate um, with the United States government, with you as kind of the intermediary, sort of managing that relationship, and then um, hopefully all leading to um, a, a relationship in which they're regularly providing sensitive information to the United States government through you that the government can't get from any other in any other way, and that that's that's a valuable thing. But you usually have you know a year, two years, something like that to kind of make those assessments. And and um, but now now think about Afghanistan or any place that we go into very suddenly. You don't have two years to build a relationship to assess somebody. You might have a week. You might have a day. You might have. I mean, the, the information you need from them, if indeed they have information, is so critical. It's of such a priority nature that that all of that sort of developmental period gets compressed into a very, very short period of time. And you can make big mistakes uh, because of that. And but it, it just becomes very, very difficult. And you you learn that you can't you know, you can't overly rely on your judgments in those instances. You have to, it has to be the old, don't trust, but, but listen and verify. And, um, and I think that's like, that's, that's a huge difference in, in, and the, the, the demands are so important. I mean, if you meet somebody that has critical information about a lethal operation that will be imminently mounted against the United States, its citizens or our allies, um, you've got to try to get that. A time is often of the essence and you've got to try to get that and nail it down right away. And you do not have the luxury in those situations um, of time to, uh, to get to know the person and make assessments about their reliability and things like that. That's always a big part of, a big part of the challenge. If you were talking about $100 here, $100 here, and of course, lots more money given to a lot of people that amounts to a ton of money. And you wonder where did all that money go, right? How did it actually better people's lives? What happened? 
Well, I don't know what percentage, but some percentage went into the bank accounts of, of you know, the, the leadership. So I, I don't want to smear people and I don't want to, you know, assign a, a percentage to that. But, but let's say some did rather well from that. I think the overall economy um, uh, in Afghanistan, such as it is, um, is entirely propped up by U.S. cash and U.S. money that has flowed in and allied money, but by far the U.S. government providing the, the lion's share of that. Um, I think some good things happened over the years. Um, you know, the, the building of some hospitals, some roads were built, some cities and, and towns got potable, you know, water where the, that they didn't have before. Um, uh, schools were built. Um, I think thousands, well, I know thousands of, of, of women went to university and were educated um, in ways that they never had the opportunity before. Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds probably became uh, medical doctors and entered other professions. And so I think the U.S. presence and the money that we spent led to much of that. A lot of the money went to the Afghan National Army. Um, it was, I think, a force of a couple hundred thousand, maybe 300,000 or so. All of that in, in training and equipping them with their uniforms and their weapons and their vehicles and all those sorts of things, just over 20 years is a, is a huge amount of money. Um, same for the, the police. Um, and, and, and we were, when I say we, you know, include allies in this, but we were paying the salaries for most of these, uh, most of these folks as well, too, which, you know, is a huge, huge draw on, you know, the American taxpayer. Um, and, and to some extent, I think the main reason that both President Trump and President Biden wanted the United States out was that um, it, it just, you know, at what point after 20 years, now it's true that we hadn't lost until today, uh, sadly. I don't think there'd been an American killed, American service person killed in um, Afghanistan for a year and a half or almost two years, something like that. Um, but uh, I, I think that, the, that both Trump and Biden felt that we shouldn't, you know, our young men and women shouldn't have their lives on the line any, any, any more there. Um, and so um, that was one of the reasons, I think, for just sort of saying, look, the time has come to extricate the United States from this. And, um, but, but it's, it's going to be very clear now, um, it'll be interesting in the, in the months ahead, but it's going to be very clear with, with the, all that money gone and these payments and these salaries and all these things that the U.S. was paying for, that's all done now. And so what's going to happen? My own sense is that China is going to move in very quickly. Um, and um, China has got money now and, and will try to be exerting its influence. And the Taliban will, unlikely, uh, will more than likely be looking to them to, to pay for a lot of their needs and things. They've got the opium trade. Um, and there's tremendous mineral wealth in Afghanistan, which the Chinese will be all over as well, too, including rare earth metals. Um, I think there's something like, there's more than a trillion dollars worth of what they say of these mineral reserves. So um, yeah, it's, it's but, but I think to answer your question, no, there's no doubt that the United States propped that economy for, for 20 years. Yeah. And has all that work, all those sacrifices, you know, the billions and billions of dollars, all of that, I mean, now that we're leaving, are we just back to square one? What happens now, especially in terms of our intelligence capabilities uh, once we're out of there? Well, our intelligence capabilities will be hurt very badly. You need, well, it's ideal to have people on the ground 
that can be reporting, observing, and reporting, running a string of agents. I think it's likely that we'll have means of staying in touch with um, with a number of people who will have some sort of clandestine relationship with the United States government to report on developments there. And that will continue, but it's not the same as having you know, US intelligence operatives on the ground operating in these different parts of the country. So um, that will be somewhat of a setback. Clearly not having military bases in the country and these forward fire bases that we had, we had airfields in different parts of the country, of course, Bagram base was very, very key for US operations. It just means you can bring in whatever supplies you need quickly and move personnel around quickly and all those sorts of things. Without that, um, uh, if, if uh, the Taliban government starts uh, having another open policy for terrorists to use the country as a safe haven and to mount operations against the United States and allies, then not having those capabilities anymore will be uh, a huge uh, disadvantage. So the Pentagon is going to have to be planning, and I assume already has planned for that's the new reality. So how, how, how do we, if we need to, how do we uh, go in and rip up terrorist camps, you know, in the future operating from outside of Afghanistan? Um, will that be from neighboring countries? I think too, one of the things that, that is, um, you know, that I think is not under, understood by the broader American public is the role that Pakistan has played. And the Pakistan intelligence service has been supporting the Taliban in Pakistan for years because they believe it's in Pakistan's interest. Um, this is due to its sort of ongoing, you know, um, sort of seeing India as its major adversary, but it likes to have what it's called strategic depth in Afghanistan. And what they think is uh, important for them is to keep Afghanistan fragmented and decentralized and all of that. And so for them, uh, the Pakistani intelligence service supporting this Taliban was originally a, a student movement. I think Taliban means student. To, they supported them. They supported them during the years of U.S. presence there. Um, these people were freely transiting the Pakistani border, which admittedly is a very long one with Afghanistan and difficult to police. But it, 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 they seem to be able to move freely into Afghanistan to conduct operations against NATO forces pretty much at will. And then you know, drift back into Pakistan um, and things like that. So, but I think without a presence there, we will be, um, that will be a, a big disadvantage. And we're just going to have to figure out um, how to deal with it if it, if it indeed becomes a, a terrorist safe haven uh, again. Mike, in addition to all of the amazing work that you did in Afghanistan, you also played a critical role in the, on the 9-11 commission. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you did and the value that it brings today as we look back over the last 20 years and then to see what's happening now in Afghanistan. So Chitra, I came back from, uh, from Afghanistan in um, April, early April, 2003. And I'd kind of been there a stretch for, for a stretch of 18 months with a couple of breaks back in Washington just to get out of it for a while. And by early April of 2003, the 9-11 Commission had been created. And, and I don't know if people remember, but uh, there was a call after the 9-11 attacks um, to investigate you know, why the United States was attacked, why the government didn't see that attack coming, and, and so on. 
And so there was a um, uh, special committee, joint intelligence committee set up in Congress to investigate that. But their mandate was only to look at potential intelligence failures in, in, in looking at, um, at, at the attacks. And so that was their mandate. But there was also a call from the public and especially from the families of the victims of 9-11, um, those who had lost loved ones in, in the attacks on the World Trade Center and at the Pentagon and who were on uh, flight United 93 that, that went down in, um, in Pennsylvania. They pressed hard uh, against uh, on the Bush administration and a Republican-led House of Representatives uh, for answers. Um, and by this time, by 2002, they developed an awful lot of influence, moral influence, and carried a lot of weight. And so finally, the White House capitulated the Bush administration and congressional leadership and passed legislation to create the 9-11 Commission. And that happened in November 2002. Uh, and so I guess we don't often think of this, but when a commission is created, it doesn't magically appear overnight. You have to recruit the people that are one going to be commissioners and the staff that are going to be doing the investigation and all of that. Yeah, you have to have fine offices for them. Those people are going to need all going to need top level government clearances. So sometimes that argues for bringing in people who already are in sensitive jobs and have those clearances. Um, and so that's what was going on from let's say early December 2002 through uh, early spring 2003. And so I was contacted when I came back from Afghanistan to, um, I, I was contacted uh, by some of the people that were staffing out the 9-11 commission. And I, I think the reason I was contacted was because one of the persons that I had worked with um, earlier in my career on the National Security Council staff at the White House um, I had a good relationship with, and she was uh, fairly important. She was being consulted on, um, on personnel for that. And she learned I was back in town and she got in touch with me and then raised my name with the co-chairs, of the 9-11 commission and with the executive director who asked to um, see me. They actually had gotten in touch with me in January of 2003 when I was temporarily back from Afghanistan and I was about to go out again. And I got called by, the, by, uh, by someone from the commission staff, a senior person who said they'd like to talk to me. And I said, I'd be happy to do that, except this afternoon I'm getting on a plane for Afghanistan. Um, and so they said, well, you come highly recommended and we'd love to talk with you, but we understand that you're gonna be doing that. And they said, unfortunately, probably when you get back, this will all be staffed out. And I said, you know, so be it. So I went to Afghanistan for another three months. And when I came back, they still had one or two interesting positions that, that um, they, they heard I was back and they asked me to go down. And I met with the co-chairs, the 9-11 commission. And I, while I was there, one of them called up the director of CIA, who was my boss, and asked whether the agency would detail me to the commission. And he agreed, provided I had no conflict of interest. And what that meant was um, it meant that I could not have been assigned to the counterterrorist center which was going to be under investigation, you know, before the 9-11 attacks, I guess. So, um, and I, I, that was not a problem for me. So that's how I got onto the commission. But I, I think in part that they wanted me because for a couple of reasons, one, because, um, you know, I just been in Afghanistan and I, I think they felt that having somebody who was actually on the ground that, that had been fighting against Al-Qaeda would be interesting for the commission. Um, but two, also because I'd had this policy level job at the National Security Council staff um, before, uh, years before. And so they they understood that I knew how 
uh, policy decisions were made and how paper moved in the US government. And that meant I could be useful in the investigation, I think. So they then asked me to, um, to head the, um, a team on the 9-11 uh, Commission that was called the Counterterrorism Policy Team, which meant that team. So the 9-11 Commission was divided into a number of different teams. Each team uh, led the investigation on dis different aspects of the 9-11 stories. So there was one team that told the history of of uh, Al-Qaeda Al Al and of terrorism. There was another team that investigated the actual movements of the uh, 19 hijackers, um, you know, how they get into the United States um, and all, all those kind of details about that. Uh, another team that looked at terrorism finance and so on and so forth. The counterterrorism policy investigation team in, in many respects, I think was the most controversial because its responsibility was to investigate the policy decisions that the Clinton administration had made and then the Bush administration had made in its first seven and a half months in office uh, in response to the rising threat of Al-Qaeda against the United States. And so the reason it was regarded as controversial, and, and you know this from your own previous work, was that the public and everybody was, was interested in knowing, are they going to blame Clinton or Bush? That's kind of what what the what the public was thinking and and that centered on the work of my team when in fact that wasn't really our role it wasn't the role of the commission the commission had a very specific mandate spelled out in the legislation that created it which was to investigate the facts and circumstances uh surrounding the 9-11 attacks and to make recommendations to keep the united states and our allies safe in the future and it was resolved very early on by, I think, by the very wise leaders of the 9-11 Commission, uh, Tom Kane and uh, Lee Hamilton, the, 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 the chair and vice chair, that it wasn't our role so much to come out and say, you know, person X is responsible for this. Rather, it was to write a history of what happened and make it as detailed and accurate as possible so that in reading that narrative, then uh, Congress um, and ordinary Americans could, by reading the text, understand quite clearly which agencies and individuals had done well and which had fallen short in some respects. And so, and I think it is reviewing the 9-11 Commission report, I think it is possible to make those determinations. And then it would be up to the political branches of our government to uh, make decisions about responsibility. Um, and, I, and I think we actually, you know, hit that mark pretty well because I guess this is more up to others to 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 um, give their opinions about. But I think that the work of the 9/11 Commission in terms of its historical narrative has stood up pretty well over the, over the what is it now um, 17 years since it, it was uh, it was its final report was published. Mike, we talked a lot about all of the money that has been poured into Afghanistan into building schools and hospitals and essentially propping up the economy, propping up the country, propping up the government. Now, as we leave, we're going to create this incredible suction effect, uh, the vacuum of uh, money. And already you can see the Taliban struggling and dealing with the fact that we've frozen all of our all of their funds in, in foreign accounts and, and uh, elsewhere. And so the question becomes, looking back, and all of this nation building that we tried to do over the past 20 years, what will become of it and was it worth it? Uh, I, I think that's the key question. And um, I, I can just sort of go back to my early days in Afghanistan. And 
and what was what I was thinking as I got to know something about the culture and the society and that part of the world. And that is that I believe from the beginning that the United States had to intervene in Afghanistan because that's where the terrorists were who, who brought the, the 9-11 attacks to us and all of that tragedy. And I think that the United States with its military capabilities and other capabilities can effectively you know, deal with specific things like that. But on the question of nation building, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a doubter about that. And I was at the time and I still am, especially after 20 years of seeing what's happened in Afghanistan. I think the society is so different there. Um, the culture is so different. And the notion that we can in some way instill in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, a belief in the principles of democratic values, um, of the fundamental thing that is supposed to exist here in the United States, which is that uh, majorities make decisions, but you at the same time, you protect the rights of minor minorities in this country. That's a fundamental precept, a fundamental principle in this country. It doesn't exist in other parts of the world. And that that it's 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 often, you know, survival of the fittest in a way. And if your clan or your ethnic group or your tribe is in the ascendancy, um, you favor that group or that religious group or that cultural group or that ethnic group over everybody else. And um, changing that that is so deeply ingrained um, cannot be done by an outside influence or power um, in any period of time that uh, we would be willing to actually to devote to it. So I think that the notion that, that uh, we could instill in the Afghan people a loyalty to a central government when their primary loyalties are to family and clan and tribe and ethnic ethnic group and religious uh, religious group um, is, you know, we're just defying reality to think that we could fundamentally change. We could change in serious ways those very basic things. And so, um, I, I think we have to get better. Uh, the United States has to get better. And, and being humbler about what we can actually accomplish in the world. I think we can accomplish a lot. And I think we have the capabilities to accomplish a lot, but there are certain things that um, can't be done by outside influences. And I think, you know, sort of creating a, an entirely new type of Afghanistan that would be so different from um, the society that it, it had been for so many, so many years, so many decades, so many centuries was a pipe dream. And for that reason, I think that there was uh, failed policy in the US government across uh, a number of administrations. It can't be pinned down on just one presidency, but across a number of administrations to, to understand that, that, that basic thing about humanity. As this 20th anniversary of 9-11 approaches, Mike, uh, what are some of your thoughts looking back at all of this work that you've done and others have done and now looking at Afghanistan and the potential for future terrorist attacks on uh, Americans, both abroad and here on US soil. I think what I think about really is, is the, the number of people that have dedicated themselves over the 20 years. Um, I'm thinking of military. I, I, I still occasionally get invited to speak at universities about uh, about the work of the 9-11 Commission. And, I, and I, I, I like to remind the students that, you know, at that very moment, 
we have at any given moment, we have young people, 18, 19, 20 years old out in some very, very dangerous parts of the world um, taking actions that protect um, protect all of us. And so um, I think we always need to be sort of conscious of that. I think about that all the time. And it's not just the military, you know, across um, the Air Force and the Marines and the Army and the Navy um, and, and the Coast Guard. Um, but now in these other institutions of uh, Department of Homeland Security and um, the FBI and CIA and the State Department, um, all those people out, we have this really vast apparatus of, uh, of people um, who, are, who are very dedicated. And I think, you know, one tribute to them, I think, is the fact that we were all concerned after the 9-11 attacks that there, there'd be something else like that, you know, on that magnitude or even bigger, because you may remember that there was deep concern about Al-Qaeda having gotten a hold of nuclear materials. And there was, you know, sort of concern about dirty bombs, that is um, nuclear materials wrapped in conventional explosives, you know, being detonated in cities that would, 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 cause radiation and lead to mass, mass casualties and things like that. There's a lot of concern about that, um, huge concern. And biological weapons, anthrax, chemical weapons, all those different things. And there was intelligence, you know, supporting that these things, that this was going to be such things were, were actual possibilities. Well, I mean, certainly there's been, you know, any number of things that have been appalling that have happened, but we haven't in the last 20 years experienced anything on the order of the 9-11 attacks. So I think in some, we've spent so much money um, and, you know, sort of lost lives, certainly of, of young Americans, and each one is a tragedy in Afghanistan and elsewhere over these 20 years. But we have avoided something like that you know, up to this, up to this time. So I think that's a, a tribute to all of this. It's come at great cost. It's come at the expenditure over the, those years of trillions of dollars and all of that. Um, and so, and it, it's changed our society so much and our culture in so many ways. You know, there's this whole debate about whether our country overreacted or, or didn't you know, that, that we, we did too much, that we've emphasized terrorism too much. Uh, what I do know is that, you know, if anything else had happened on the order of 9-11 and we hadn't implemented some of the changes we made and we hadn't, you know, our leadership hadn't absorbed some of the lessons of the 9-11 attacks, then there would have been hell to pay for that. So um, I, I, I think another thing that I think about with respect to this and and, People may remember that when the Soviet Union collapsed in you know, kind of that time period, 1990, 1991, um, there was all this talk about you know, this peace dividend that we were going to be able to enjoy. And the peace dividend was that we had spent so much from our national treasury in conducting the Cold War and keeping with the Soviet Union and keeping Europe free and keeping the United States free and, um, and, and so much national treasure over this period of time that now with this adversary, this principal adversary having collapsed that we were gonna have this peace dividend and all this money that had gone over 45 years for those purposes could now be reprogrammed and, and, and used in ways to, I don't know, um, provide housing, to provide better education opportunities, 
whatever it was, better infrastructure in our country. Well, that didn't last very long. And we asked ourselves the question, what happened to the peace dividend? Well, what happened was that we live in a dangerous world. And, and when that adversary collapsed, you know, uh, other things occurred, including national, uh, transnational terrorism in the, in the rest of the 90s and through the early 2000s up until now. And I just think that the lesson for me anyway has been um, that we have to be ever vigilant, that we're never gonna live in a world that's gonna be free of, of threats to us and to our allies. And, you know, to think that we can ever set down this burden of taking the measures, responsible measures to protect ourselves, it's just a fact, we're never gonna be free of it. It's kind of the human condition, I think. So we have to pay attention to what's happening in the world. We have to be alert to it. I don't think we need to be paranoid about it. We shouldn't be, we should be strong. We should, you know, elect leaders that, that understand these threats and take the reasonable measures to keep us secure, knowing that none of these measures will ever lead to 100% security. That's not possible. And so either when mistakes are made or, or when things happen, it's not initially looking to find somebody to blame, but to learn what we can from it and to move forward. Um, but I think, I mean, just as one note of, of, optimism i've i think over these 20 years as i look back at them and i look back at the at the dedication of so many americans in so many different fields including the private sector i see a tremendous strength and a tremendous resilience and that gives me a lot of confidence for the future mike thank you so much for joining me on techtopia and for this wonderful conversation my pleasure chitra Michael Hurley served for 25 years as a CIA operations officer and manager, serving 15 years in foreign countries. Immediately after the 9-11 attacks, Hurley deployed for 18 months to Afghanistan, where he led agency personnel and U.S. Special Forces in Operation Anaconda, the biggest campaign of the Afghan conflict to find and destroy the last refuge of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. In that role, Mike was a leader in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. He also served as senior counsel and team leader on the 9-11 Commission, directing its counterterrorism policy investigation and co-authoring its best-selling final report. Hurley remains deeply immersed in the national security and policy implications in the aftermath of the attacks and speaks and advises widely on those critical issues. He has also served as special advisor for Middle East security to the former national security advisor and Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, General James Jones, as a special advisor to the Nuclear Threat Initiative and to the US State Department. And he served as two-time National Security Council Director for the Balkans. Hurley currently is a strategic advisor to some of the most innovative technology companies in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. 
Join us next week for another episode of Tectopia. I'll see you then.